Welcome to the December episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Seth O'Brien, Chief Clinical Officer at Wheeler OMP and Chair of the Academy's Scientific Societies Committee. Today, we get to dive into an advanced surgical approach that's been gaining a lot of attention within the field of prosthetics the past few years. And that's why I'm especially excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Jason Stoneback, Chief of Orthopedic Trauma and Fracture Surgery, and the Director of the Limb Restoration and Osseointegration Programs at the University of Colorado Hospital. Dr. Stoneback specializes in orthopedic trauma, limb lengthening, limb salvage, and osseointegration surgery in amputees. When we were putting together this podcast to discuss bone-anchored prosthetics, it felt like a no-brainer to get you on, Dr. Stoneback. So it's great to see you again, and, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Seth. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'd love to know a little bit about how you got introduced to orthopedic surgery, but specifically osseointegration. Where, where did that journey start for you? The journey started a long time ago, but I was very much into athletics. So I, I have a kind of a unique sports background. A lot of contact sports was played rugby. I was a bull rider as well as saddle bronc rider, competed in rodeo. So with those types of events, I had a lot of injuries and I had a lot of friends who had a lot of injuries. So I had a specific interest in like how to perform better from an athletic standpoint, how to recover faster. And that ultimately led me to becoming an orthopedic surgeon. I didn't realize that background about you. Where, where did you grow up? Somewhere in yeah. the South, I'm assuming maybe? All over. Families from Tennessee. Okay. But I lived overseas for quite a while in the Philippines and around Southeast Asia, where I learned to play rugby because we didn't have football over there. We had rugby. A little bit different of the sort of the traditional sports that you hear from people. But anyways, that's what led me to ultimately to be an orthopedic surgeon. And then within that, getting into orthopedic trauma and having a, a real desire to intervene in patients' lives when they were at their darkest time where they had really bad problems. And that's what led me to orthopedic trauma. And within that, taking on complex limb reconstruction cases like deformity correction. So we spend a lot of time straightening out crooked limbs or limb lengthening, making bones that didn't heal, non-unions heal. And when you're doing that type of work, which is typically referred to as limb salvage surgery, then you are also, there's some patients who need a very well done amputation at the right time. It's the right answer for the right patient at the right time. That's a big part of our program. The limb restoration program at the university of Colorado is this limb salvage service and making sure that we provide the best care for the patient, depending on their needs. Ultimately that led to osseointegration because there are a subset of patients who have had amputations, no matter how well performed, who are not doing well with traditional socket prosthetics and need that surgical procedure. And I think historically, most people know that that type of procedure has been happening for a long time overseas, but is still gaining traction here in the US. But how did you get introduced to that specific procedure? As I said, we have this program, this limb salvage program called the limb restoration program that does many things other than osteointegration, as I mentioned. However, as I said, we have this dedicated program for surgery and management of amputees as a part of that program. So we had this infrastructure already in place. We had many patients coming to us saying, 
I'm having a problem with my existing amputation. What can we do? So we, we identify that this was a significant issue. And then I had a patient who was referred to me who had bilateral transtibial osteointegration in Australia. They had an, a, an issue and, and they were coming to see me and I was just floored. And that sort of fostered the notion that we need to figure out more about this and we need to be a part of bringing this to the United States. One of the things that I think is really unique about your situation in particular is that you've got experience with both the press fit and the screw fit implants. Speak about the difference between those two approaches, if you would. Yeah. So the implants themselves by design are very different. So if you look at Oprah or screw fit type of device, it is based off of the original osteointegration technology where this all was birthed from. So dental implant technology. So many of these uh, dental implants are screws. They're screwed into the gums. The gums are covered over and then they come back and put the tooth on. That is what led to the original osteointegration procedure for amputees. So that device is a screw. It is a fixed length typically and it's done only in two stages. So the first surgery is what we would consider maybe the smaller surgery, if you will, where the femur, and in the United States it's isolated to femurs, is osteotomized or cut at the correct level. And there's a lot of planning that goes into what correct levels for all implants. And you can talk about that later if you like, but that is essentially revised at the correct level the implant is placed and then the soft tissue envelope is closed. Now, per the instructions for use, there's a six month window between stage one and stage two where the implant is integrating. Okay. Now some institutions have shortened that period to three months. And so that's also occurring. The second stage is really the larger surgery, if you will, but it's primarily a soft tissue contouring or soft tissue surgery. There's a large flap that was created. And then the skin penetration site from the end of the bone is prepared where the implant actually comes through the bone. And then an abutment component is added to the implant where it comes out of the skin. So then after that, there's a, about a six week period where there's no weight bearing allowed. It's allowing the soft tissue envelope to heal and then rehabilitation starts. And in short, it's about a month of axial loading only, uh, like on a short stool on a weighted scale. And then for a month after that, it's axial loading only with a longer implement like that. And then you start getting into your prosthesis and actually starting to load and walk in the prosthesis. So walking with your prosthesis with Oprah happens somewhere around the nine month mark. And it, it varies by about three months, depending on that window between stage one and stage two. Sure. Now press fit is technology based on what we commonly do, like with hip replacements. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's a porous coated implant and we're doing that currently in the United States under a custom basis with intibious femurs around the world. There's been more of those implants implanted for amputees that can be done in a two-stage or single-stage technique. The two-stage technique, similar to Oprah, 
is done typically the the larger surgery where we revise the soft tissue envelope and it put the implant in and close the skin is the first stage. And then if you're doing a second stage, you come back and you make an incision, bring the implant through the skin and bring the transcutaneous component, which is called a dual cone in this setting, as opposed to an abutment with OBRA and it brings it through the skin. And then typically patients start, there are rehabilitation protocols with press fit, but then that rehabilitation starts after that. Typically it's six weeks between stage one and stage two. Most of the surgeons who are doing a lot of press fit work have migrated to a single stage technique. That's where we implant the device, do all the soft tissue revision work and bring the implant actually through the skin all in one surgery. In our practice, both tibias and femurs, they're done in a single stage technique and then we wait six weeks and then we begin weight bearing actually in their prosthesis. They're typically walking unassisted by the three and a half month post-operative mark. And is the the terminology of just the, the dual cone versus the abutment, is that more so just directed by the manufacturers and the things that they put in place? Or is there some other is there some other meaning behind that at all? No, it's they're just the terms for the transcutaneous component. So with both systems, there is or style of devices and they're not necessarily systems. Oprah is a system, but there are many different press fit implants around the world. And so it's just the component that traverses the skin. Now in Oprah, that's a fixed length with the dual cone that are with press fit devices. You can get varying lengths of the dual cone, which helps you accommodate patients' soft tissue envelopes that may be larger or smaller, et cetera. Yep. Okay. You mentioned the limb restoration program there at the University of Colorado. Tell me a little bit more about the program. I know we've had some mutual patients and I'm somewhat familiar with it, but I'd love to hear you just speak a little bit to the importance of how you approach that holistic care. And it, really, I think that all of these types of procedures are absolutely best when they're in a coordinated team approach to that care, right? I would totally agree with that statement, Seth. So we were very fortunate doing the type of work we do, complex limb reconstruction and salvage, to have a robust infrastructure here at the University of Colorado. So what does that look like? So we have weekly meetings with multiple different subspecialists on the line. That's everyone from vascular surgery to plastic surgery to nerve specialists to an orthopedic infectious disease specialists, you name it. We have a huge group that provides support for the program and patient navigation, if you will. So we have a nurse navigator for the limb restoration program whose role is to triage patients who are call in or referred to the program and make sure we get all of the records from everywhere they've ever been and all the surgeries they've ever had done. So we don't miss anything. Help decide what does the visit need to look like? Who all do they need to see so that when they often travel from far away, they come here and they have a really meaningful visit, right? They meet all the specialists that they need to in a coordinated visit type of approach. We have nurse practitioners who specialize in making sure that patients are optimized for surgery so they have their best possible outcome. We have physical medicine rehabilitation specialists. We have everything you can think of like that. And for integration, we have a, a program manager who is like the nurse navigator, if you will, for all integration patients. So when they call in, these patients know exactly who that is, 
they're very familiar with that person and there's like this point of contact for anything they need. Other components to that program are a dedicated process who has a lot of experience with OSI integration. That's a huge component as well. I'm bouncing around a little bit, but basically we have this infrastructure to deal with complex problems and we just use that infrastructure with some specific added specialists like this navigation person specifically for OSI integration patients to make sure that everything they need is covered and whatever issues we run into, we have a group of people that represent any type of subspecialist that we need, whether it's a soft tissue issue, we have plastic surgeons who are familiar with osteointegration surgery and participate on all the surgeries who can help address those problems. If there's an infection, we have orthopedic infectious disease specialists who are typically all dealing with osteointegrated amputees. So they understand the nuances that go along with someone who may get an infection with osteointegration, a prosthetist, you name it. It seems, I think, as prosthetists, we're used to that long-term follow-up care, and there's always needs, right? The limb's always changing, the body's always changing, their functional ability may be changing, whether they're improving or declining as they age. But it seems like maybe was it a little bit of a of an adjustment coming from the from the orthopedic surgery side, where I think that longer-term follow-up was maybe something a little different than what you're used to. And typically, when a when a case happens, there's a, a definitive end to that until there's some other issue that comes up, and this. Maybe is this more of a long-term relationship that takes a little adjusting to that system? Yes and no. We, we do take on some incredibly complex cases. So I've had patients that are missing entire half of their tibia, and we're effectively using techniques to grow a new bone. You get to know those patients for three or four years before you're out of the woods, so to speak. But yes, osteointegration and amputees and APT care, is a, it's really a lifelong partnership, if you will. That's the way our program views it, is we're here with them for the rest of their life for anything that they could possibly need and their needs will change over time. And so we're here for that. And we really pride ourselves on being partners with their, what we call a home prosthetist, their process wherever they live, and then partnering with our prosthetists who may have more expertise and experience with osteointegration in particular but they can be a resource to that home prosthetist to help them learn how to manage and see a, a resource for questions and help manage that patient from afar as well. I'd love to just go into maybe some of the basics of osteointegration. We touched a lot on what it is, but why do we do it? What are some of the indications that would that would tell you that maybe somebody is a candidate for OI? Yeah. So classically, it's the person that has had an amputation and is having difficulty with socket prosthetic wear. So there are a multitude of issues that can lead to having difficulty with a socket prosthesis, right? Redundant soft tissue envelope, huge volume fluctuations, body habitus, short, very short residual limbs, complex scars or skin grafts that just are very difficult to fit and cause chronic wounds, et cetera. So those patients who are healthy, who do not have poorly controlled diabetes or are immunosuppressed or are smokers. So those are some of the things that preclude our ability to provide osteointegration. But if in the absence of those contraindicating factors, those are the patients that benefit the most from 
cost integration. One of the questions that I think I get the most, especially as, as some of those patients that have had osteointegration are around the office. It's always turning heads and I get a handful of questions from people who are around afterwards, but maybe just touching on a little bit about kind of the FDA status. So I, I know the Oprah implant system from Integrum has achieved that FDA approval. Are the rest of those surgeries outside of that specific use case still being done under the humanitarian device exemption from the FDA? Or w what's the process? Because I think one of the misnomers there is that it's not happening in the U.S. because it's not FDA approved. But I think that's not necessarily the case. It's just a little different mechanism, right? Yeah. So that, that's very true. So yes, for the transfemoral indication, Oprah is FDA approved. Now, there are patients that do not meet OPRA criteria. So there are certain criteria that have to be met. There's abnormal bony anatomy that the OPRA device may not be able to be implanted in. OPRA is not approved for use in tibias or transhumorally in the United States. So there are other avenues. So there's compassionate use exemption for some types of implants. There are custom device exemptions through the FDA that can be used in order to facilitate osteointegration with press-fit style implants. There are other implants on the horizon. So there is a study that we're a part of for a device called the Compress, and that is a little bit different than the two main devices that we discussed earlier. So it's more of a relies on pre-programmed axial compression and osteointegration at the very distal end of the femur. So there's a lot on the horizon. It's an exciting time. Yeah, hold that thought a little bit because I, I certainly want to know, a look into your crystal ball in, in just a moment here. But let's circle back to some of the component choices, right? So a lot of our audience being CPOs, what are some of the things that you think about when you talk about prosthetic component and, and some of the different needs for osteointegration patients? Yeah, that's a great question. And we are learning a lot about that as we gain experience nationally and internationally. So in summary, prosthetic component choices can be very different and it requires a different approach than with socket suspended type of prosthetics. Number one is alignment is incredibly critical because what we're doing is instead of, a, of accommodating a patient's flexion contracture, and abduction contracture of their, say, high AK. What we're doing is we're reharnessing the patient's musculoskeletal system as a whole, right? So we are implanting a device that then becomes basically an extension of their femur. And then over time, and that's a part of the rehabilitation process, which requires a, a lot of thoughtful approach, is to gradually stretch out those flexion abduction contractures and get a normal alignment that is symmetric to their contralateral extremity. In of itself, that effort as that's occurring, and a lot of that will occur if you're looking at like a Presta technique where we have a three-week intensive rehabilitation session when they start weight-bearing six weeks after stage one. What is happening is we're stretching all those muscles and we're getting their alignment, and so their length of their limb effectively changes as that alignment is improving. With all osteointegration, but especially with transtibial osteointegration, that alignment and where the weight-bearing axis is going through the knee is critically important. So if it's off, patients can have knee pain and it, they're not really sure why, and it's because their alignment's not correct. So that goes into what I mentioned before, 
a lot of preoperative planning and working closely with prosthetists because what componentry are we trying to fit them with? Are we talking about, is there a torque absorber? Is there a positional rotator? All of these things are factors. How much residual limb length do they have? Do they have a amputation on the contralateral extremity? All of these things need to be thought of ahead of surgery to try and get knee centers balanced and at the same level and result with all the competitive that you need and want, but equal little lengths at the same time. Now, beyond that, there are differences in stiffness of feet. Sometimes people will have pain because their feet are too stiff, whereas they were doing great with that stiffer foot in a socket. So there are nuances like that, and that's why it's really important the home prosthetist coordinates with someone like a center like ours that has a lot of experience because we can help navigate those nuances that they may not be aware of. And it's really fun to learn together. And that's a an area of significant research that our lab is looking into. Yeah. And the support between having the resources on some of the cases that I've seen, right. And, and having those resources call and connect with the team over there easily and find out, I may see 10 or 12 of these cases, but talking to someone who's seeing 20, 30, 40, 50, a hundred of these cases is so valuable because so many of the components that you just wouldn't think they, they seem completely apples to apples and man, the difference that can be experienced by the wearer can be drastic, even when it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of change there. One thing that we haven't even touched on yet, and man, we could probably talk for three hours and still have plenty of content, but I'm really excited to have uh, you on this team. There's been whispers about the Academy launching its 10th scientific society on bone-anchored prosthetics. That society, we are both among the 20 founding members, and it's something that is finally off the ground and starting. So I think it's worth mentioning that the founding members are finalizing the foundational elements of that society, and we're planning to unveil this formally at the Academy meeting in Chicago, which is going to be the Academy's 50th annual meeting. It's crazy to think that. But first of all, thank you so much for being a part of that. I'm really excited that the multi-involvement in the society, I think, is going to be something very special. I'm super excited about it. It's needed. It's great that it's going to coincide with the 50th. It's super cool. Looking forward to it. And Chicago is always an amazing place to be for us. That's really one of our staple cities in the rotation there. It's a regular, and I think everybody's got a, a good or, or a story that they can't tell at work, maybe either from those meetings. But with all the societies, I, I'll throw it out there real quick. So they're open to all Academy members, and it's not just CPOs. It's not just clinicians. There's plenty of avenues to get involved. So if anybody is interested in finding out more about the scientific societies, they can go to the communities section of the Academy's website at omp.org. Man, is it, we're gonna we're running up against the clock here. If you could look into your crystal ball, Dr. Stoneback, I'd I'd love to know what for the future of osteointegration. Is it maybe different types of implants coming? Is it maybe a rapid kind of evolution of us seeing different levels of use? Or what do you think is in the future for OI? Great question. I think that the future is wide open. And I think that we're going to, number one, see expanding use in multiple bones. You see it in a very small subset of patients, whether that's forearm-based implants or digits, et cetera. I think you're going to see expansion in a lot of the 
in the anatomic sites that it's offered, number one. Number two, I think we're going to get a lot better feel for what are the optimal components that these patients need and how do you start them off as an osteointegrated amputee and what is the optimal alignment, et cetera. We're also going to know what is the true benefit. Right now, many centers around the world are looking at a whole host of things. We know that the right patient at the right time that receives a bone-anchored limb or osteointegration is very happy typically and does well. So how do we get that across to insurers, to countries, healthcare systems, so that they understand the benefits and support these techniques for everyone that potentially needs it? And so part of that is just how do we measure success in patients? And so our lab is working on that quite extensively. And then furthermore, it's now upper extremity myoelectric prosthetics. So very heavy and cumbersome and not everyone likes them for a lot of reasons. But if we take away how heavy they are, if we're able to anchor them to the skeleton, then that opens that arena up for direct neural connections that a lot of that work's being done both with socket related amputations as well as oxyintegrated amputees and that's a direct coupling of the neural interface super exciting stuff but that's where this is going in the not too distant future yeah absolutely exciting to think of one thing that I, I love to ask and I love to hear, we often change our minds over time. Is there anything that you've changed your mind on over the past several years? Any topic, doesn't even have to be OI, it could be orthopedic surgery, but anything that's changed your mind lately? So many things. I would say within integration surgery is that when patients are doing relatively well with integration, but they're having some sort of issue, whether it be cosmetic or it, it seems to be a soft tissue related issue, we're very diligent about what subset of those patients that we recommend or offer surgery to, because a lot of patients we have found over the years, all over the world, they go from unable to wear a socket or very poor socket wear and just miserable to doing fairly well with osteointegration, but maybe we're chasing a small cosmetic issue with the soft tissue envelope or something like that. And then they develop a worse problem. Say that's maybe a, a soft tissue envelope that's too tight or they get an infection when they never had one before. So I think it's something that we have to be very cautious with about doing revision surgery on osteointegration and when and how is something that is of particular interest to our team. We're trying to figure that out. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear just your perspective. I can't thank you enough for joining us. And, and thanks really for taking the time to, to chat with me today. Yeah, my pleasure, Seth. It's great. Thanks for having me. We'll look forward to seeing you in Chicago, hopefully. Thank you for joining us for this episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders. Hope you'll join us each month as we continue our conversation with key voices in the OMP community, discussing their areas of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in that specialty. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Academy's award-winning podcasts for OMP professionals, OMP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard, and OMP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our field. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at omp.org. Thank you so much for listening. 
and we will catch you next time.